please take your Bible and look to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 12, Nehemiah chapter 12. And we are continuing on. Many of you have asked me the question of whether or not we are going to get through with Nehemiah. And um, Lord willing, next week, one way or another, we're going to get through (laughs) Nehemiah. But um, I'm really glad it worked out this way. Um, because you may not realize this, but Nehemiah is the only book I've ever studied in the Bible. And so, um, so I'm glad this, this worked out exactly as I planned it and hoped. So the Lord has been gracious and merciful to me in this process. Not long ago, I had the privilege of getting to attend a, a wonderful service where we at our church had the privilege of recognizing two deacons who had served for many, many years. I think uh, between the two of them, it was over 100 years of service. And uh, the church recognized them and designated them as deacons uh, emeriti, or each a deacon emeritus. And it was a wonderful time. Um, for our church and for for my wife and I, and as we saw this, these men had served in our church while our boys were little. We have two sons, and and uh, we came to that church when they were very young. And these men were just faithful servants in our church, and and it was a wonderful thing to see them do that and to think about. That's the kind of church I wanted to raise my sons in, where they could see leaders who are truly spiritual leaders, who are servants, and they were servants and still are servants. And it, it was an amazing thing to see that. And uh, it was good for us to recognize them and, and the work that they had done and service that they had done to our church, for our church, for so many years. And then... In that same service, we ordained uh, a man. Um, the older I get, I start calling them young men, but uh, he was 28, so he wasn't that young, but um, 30 years younger than me, so uh, younger than me for sure. And um, he grew up in our house, literally. Um, it's not our son, but it's our oldest son's best friend. And every weekend, our, our son was one night, um, he would, one would spend Friday night at our house and then Saturday night at the other's house. And then we would touch base together on Sunday. And uh, whichever parent was missing one, we'd collect them on Sunday at church and, and bring them home. But um, this young man um, is just such a godly man. And, and I knew this because, again, I... I saw him grow up. He was the same age as my children, and as at least my oldest son, and just seeing God work in his life, and now seeing him as a, a man who is married and, and a father and, and a godly servant in the church, 
And what a wonderful thing it is to see that as well still. And that's kind of what I thought of when we, and what I think of when I think of Nehemiah chapter 12. Because Nehemiah chapter 12 is, first of all, a recognition of those who have served. And it is looking back on those who have even passed who have served and looking back also with those who um, were older and still serving and still yet looking at those who are younger and serving at the time as well. And so it, it's a wonderful picture of the people of God looking at those who have been faithful servants, looking at those who are faithful servants. And then I would say looking ahead to the desire to continue to, to raise up faithful servants. And as we look at this, I, it, it reminds me as well of uh, years ago, I had the opportunity to do some work in Ecuador. And I had the opportunity to train pastors. And uh, it was just a wonderful blessing to me. Um, but we were in uh, Tambo, um, Ecuador. And what was interesting about Tambo, and, and by the way, we were on a mountain that was about 7,000 feet um, above sea level, so we were way up there. Um, we were above rainbows. Um, I had never been above the rainbows actually standing. I've seen them in aircraft before, but never actually on the ground seeing that. And sometimes in the middle of rainbows, um, if, in case you wonder, they're wet. That's what they are, okay? And so um, I've been in those as well. But what was wonderful, one of the many wonderful things there is um, the place we stayed, and it's where we did our, our uh, teaching as well. There was um, just nice uh, rooms for us to, to stay in, uh, bunk beds, and, and a nice area for us to, to be dry and to, to be safe and, and to sleep comfortably. And what I found out is the very floors that uh, were in those rooms, um, people from our church years and years before had gone there and laid those floors and had built those bunk beds. And um, it was very, very cold where we were in Tambo. And so... Um, it was nice that they had built tanks that would warm up the water so each morning at least the one time of the day we would feel warm was in that shower. And uh, I'd have, um, the only thing is it was either hot or cold. There was no warm uh, with it, but hot was good um, after that. And um, it was kind of like, in case you're wanting to know, it's kind of like just living in Cleveland and um, in December, all year round, that's where the, kind of the weather, it is where I grew up. And so everyone else there thought they were going to die. And it's just, you know, you just put more clothes on. That's, that's how you work with that. So it was a wonderful time there. And I say that because it reminded me as well that I had the blessing to teach these pastors. But there were many who had come before me who had done work, who had literally laid the groundwork in, in those rooms, but also laid the work in, in reaching out to these people to lead them to Christ and to start churches and, and to see these pastors there. 
and to understand that I was coming in on something where others, many others over several years had gone before me and done that work. And it was good for me. It was especially good to me. I remember when I was a pastor, when I first started pastoring, I was 23 years old. And uh, the church had had some major problems. In fact, they went from running about 175 and had a huge, just terrible thing happen with the church, um, strife in the church, to where when I came and they invited me to preach for the first time, there were about 16 people there. And they had just built, built a, a brand new facility um, about two years before that uh, it was a beautiful auditorium, um, brand spanking new. Um, uh, they had also built an education area that was wonderful. I had, um, it's a lot like the pastor's office here, but I have to say um, it was a little bigger than that even, but it had a conference table and all like this one um, does. The only thing is um, they, they just bought the most expensive stuff they, they had there. And it was really strange because we had all this wonderful facility. And of the 16 people, only two of them were not seniors. Um, so two of them were less uh, in age than 65. Um, the only deacon was, I think, the age of Methuselah. I'm not sure. Um, but um, he was an elderly man, and, and uh, so this is where we went. And um, I'm reminded of, of that as well because as a 23-year-old, they'd always talk about the good old days, how it was before. And as a 23-year-old, I didn't want to hear about the good old days because they were no good old days for me. I was starting out, and I was ready to go. And I heard at a church conference, a leadership conference, a man said um, this phrase. He said, yesterday ended last night. Boy, I locked into that. And whenever they'd start talking about the good old days, I said, yesterday ended last night. It's over with. And they would look at me and you say, boy, you have no idea how much it is over with, is it? I mean, but certainly that was the case. And I had no appreciation for people who had come before me. I thought that I was their gift. I came to save the day. I didn't want to hear about what had happened because I did know enough about what happened that it was terrible. And I thought, boy, the Lord has done them a favor. Now, that was my attitude. I will tell you, the Lord has helped me with that attitude over the years. Even in that church, he helped me with that attitude. And I came to realize that they were the ones who were gracious to me, putting up with this 23-year-old who had very little experience, had a lot of zeal and enthusiasm, but needed to uh, have some maturing in my life. And they were gracious to put up with me and uh, allow me to minister. And I, as I have gotten older, I realized that they had a greater ministry to me than what I had to them, although at the time, I didn't realize that. So it's important for us to recognize that we don't need to live in the past, but we must remember the past and have an appreciation that the world and the church and the ministry of the gospel did not start when T.J. Betts came on the scene or when you came on the scene, but there have been people faithful for years and people who are faithful now and Lord willing, as I understand the scriptures, 
people who will be faithful all the way to the end until the Lord comes again. And so this chapter is tied to that and understanding that. And there are three, three sections that I would like us to look at here. First is the documentation of spiritual leadership. And what they, they did is they actually made a list, looked at an older list and put together a list of everyone who had been in spiritual leadership and had served in some way. And that's the first 26 verses here. So documentation of spiritual leadership. Verses 27 through 47, we see the dedication of the wall. We've had the wall finished, but now is when they're having this dedication service, finally. And so it is a time that, as we've been working through this book, we see um, a time of dedication concerning the wall. And then finally, in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and by the way, this chapter, again, if you follow the actual text, goes through the beginning of 12 through 13.3. And at the, at the first three verses in chapter 13, we see the disengagement of the people. So the documentation of spiritual leadership, the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, and the disengagement of the people. So let's look at the documentation of spiritual leadership. And I want to read verse 1 here. It says, Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel um, and Jeshua. And we see here in verses 1 through 7, the priests who first returned. And so what are we talking about? Well, there were three returns. When Jerusalem was finally taken away from the Babylonians and the Persians took over, they told the people of Judah, in fact, King Cyrus this Persian king said that the Lord, your Lord, Yahweh, has sent me, and I am his messenger. And he has sent me to tell you that you can go back to Jerusalem, and I will give you the money and the supplies you need to rebuild the temple. And so there was a first return that took place, and uh, this was under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and um, this happened probably about 537, 536 B.C. Second, there was a second return under Ezra, and we've seen Ezra. So Ezra is a contemporary of, of Nehemiah, and he's, he's been in leadership here spiritually. And what we see with Ezra is that he led another group about 597, or I'm sorry, um, uh, five or 497. And so we're talking about... 40 years later, he led another group back. And then finally, we see shortly after that, in about 445, Nehemiah leads a third group back. So there were three returns from captivity back to Jerusalem. What this documents, verses 1 through 7, are those who came with Zerubbabel in the first return. And all of these people are surely dead by this time. But it is significant that every name represents a man of God who returned home after 70 years in captivity to a city that was full of debris that had been destroyed in order to reestablish the worship of Yahweh in his holy city, Jerusalem. And Ezra gives the account of this. 
In Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Then the heads of the fathers of the households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had, had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So even though they were in grave danger making the trip, even though they were in danger as they came there and there were enemies around them that did not want them to be there, they came right away to Jerusalem and built the altar and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. That's the first thing the people did when they first returned back to Jerusalem. And they, they were the ones who encouraged the people to rebuild the foundation of the temple, and they were the ones who reestablished the work of the house of the Lord. Thank the Lord that there are those who are willing to get their hands dirty and serve the Lord in difficult places. I mentioned already my time in Ecuador, and um, I would say that I didn't feel like my life was in danger in Ecuador, but I, it, it made me think of, as I went to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, when he and four others had gone to Ecuador many years before and were martyred for the cause of Christ. And the opportunities that we had as the group I was with to go minister in Ecuador started with men and women like Jim Elliott, who gave their very lives for the work of the gospel in that country so that those people might hear the gospel and so that some might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a wonderful thing to remember these people. Uh, years ago, I have a friend who moved into a well-established neighborhood. And he told me this. I said, what made you choose where, where you moved? And he said, the trees. I thought, that's interesting. He moved into this neighborhood about the trees. He said, but I want to move into a neighborhood that is firmly established and has very large, mature trees. And I thought that was great. Um, we didn't move into that kind of place. Um, we moved into a place that had no trees and um, had no houses. They were building them. And um, I have over, we've lived there a little over 20 years now, and I have three, no four, successful trees, kind of three and a half. One of them's really short. Um, but uh, the deal is, when I heard him say that, and this is before we were even getting a house, I thought to myself, though, you know what, it's nice to live in a place that's firmly established with all the trees, but it's also nice when people go to a new place and plant trees, and both are nice. And I'm grateful for those who are willing to do the work of the gospel, like Jim Elliott, and go do the planting, and go to the hard places, the barren places, and to do that work. And that's what this list is about. Why do I share this with you? We read these lists. Let's be honest. We're like, when can we get through reading this? And maybe we don't even do that. Maybe we just skip through it to see where can, where's something that really matters in this thing. But let me tell you, this list may not matter to you. And it may not even matter to me, but it matters to God. 
Because this is an eternal record of people who left what was established for them now, even if it was in exile, it was safe and it was established and there was great commerce where they were to move back to a dangerous place that was full of debris and nothing was established. And they were willing to do that work. And so it's good that we remember that. And then verses 8 and 9, it mentions the Levites who did this. Now, who were the Levites? The Levites were the helpers to the priests. So the priests were the ones that led in worship, but the Levites were kind of associate priests, but they weren't priests. Sometimes they would teach. In rare occasions, if there were no priests, they might even offer a sacrifice, but that's very rare and under extreme circumstances. But the deal is with the Levites, they were the ones that were not front and center. They were the ones kind of in the background, helping the priests have all the materials they needed, making sure everything was set up for them just the way it needed to be set up. They were the ones that were taking care of the facilities of the tabernacle and making sure everything was right with it, and then later on, the temple. And they were the ones that were not up in front of everybody, and yet nothing would have happened that needed to happen if they had not been faithful to the work that they were called to do. And so it mentions these people. And then in verses 10 and 11, it mentions the line of the high priest. It says in verse 10, Jeshua became the father of Jehoiakim, and, or Joachim, and became the father of Eliashib, and Eliashib became the father of Joada, and Joada became the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan became the father of Jadua. And these are the lists of the high priest that came, starting with um, the first and, and those who came um, at the very beginning. And as, as we look at this, um, Jeshua was the first high priest to come with Zerubbabel. What's, what's important about him? He was the, the high priest that was a part of the rebuilding of the temple that took place. He helped lead that among others, Zerubbabel, and of course the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And then we have Joachim, and he bridged the, bridged the gap between Jeshua and Nehemiah. What's interesting about Joachim is that things went badly in his ministry. The priests under his leadership um, had turned to marrying um, foreign women, and they had turned some to idolatrous kind of kind of ways, although not idolatry, but they had allowed um, um, these things to come in and have an influence with the, the people, and they were very um, unfaithful, and yet they are included in this record. And Nehemiah, or I'm sorry, Ezra 9 and 10, if you want to go back sometime this week and look at um, these chapters, it describes what Ezra did when he showed up. He found this to be the case, and what did he do? Um, first, he... he he recognized that the spiritual leadership had compromised what was going on. He had eyes to see. He looked at it, and then secondly, he came and confronted them. And then thirdly, he prayed, and he prayed to God as he confronted the people, actually before he confronted the people, and, and as he confronted the people, and he stepped forward 
and he confessed the sins of the people and set out to write the record um, of, of what was going on and correct it. And then Ezra begins as a spiritual leader himself, and he calls the people to repentance. And then everyone repents except a handful. And so don't be surprised by that. There's always the case. We saw this in the rebuilding of the wall. Most people did the right thing, but not everyone's going to do the right thing. But don't let the ones who aren't doing the right thing keep the people who are doing the right thing from doing the right thing. Did you follow that? Don't ask me to repeat it. But you just keep going and doing the work. And sometimes people just don't get in on it. And they miss the blessing of God. But don't let them keep you from doing the work that God has called you to do. Because there will always be those people. It goes with the territory of ministry. And so this is what Ezra did. And so finally, the record indicates that the priests and Levites um, repented and Ezra did not destroy their offices, but it continued on. And so here's another point. Just because people mess up doesn't mean the office isn't significant and needs to keep moving on. I may have shared this with you. This resonated with me years ago when I was a little boy, about 12 years old. Not so little, I guess, but 12 years old. And we moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Dayton, Ohio. And um, that church also had just a mess going on. Um, the pastor was doing things he shouldn't have been with a teenage girl in the church. Um, there were a group of lesbians who who knew he was doing what he was doing, so they were blackmailing him. And, and I think I told you all about this. It was a mess there. And I remember a woman coming out, a friend of ours, and she came out and said to my dad, I'm never going to trust the pastor ever again. And he said to her, I'm never going to trust the nurse again because she was a nurse. And she's like, what do you mean? And she got it, though. Just because there are bad pastors doesn't mean all of them are bad pastors. And doesn't mean that we don't need a pastor biblically the scriptures teach us we need that leadership in the church, and we definitely do. We don't need to read that. We can see it as well. And so just because others have messed up doesn't mean that others aren't doing the right thing. And so this is what we see with this list as well. And then it, as it goes on and talks about these various Levites, it moves on then. Um, and uh, one of the things I would say just again about the Levites, um, that spiritual leaders need the support of faithful servants of the Lord around them. And just as the Levites were the helpers, the supporters for the priests, leaders in the church need desperately godly people to support them. And God has made it that way. And it, 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 to support the leadership, I think it takes us back to our forward, I guess from the Old Testament, for instance, to 1 Corinthians 13. And it is believing the best. It, it, it is truly loving the leadership and being grateful to God for the leadership and doing everything possible to support them. 
You've heard this saying, behind every good man, there is a, a wonderful wife. Let me tell you, behind every good pastor, there's a wonderful church that's supporting them and helping them and praying for them and is ready to lift them up and to be there for them. And that is what we see here with these Levites. That was their job. And as they were faithful, they were remembered about this. And let's think about our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 20. And we'll not read the whole passage, but in fact, any of it. But let me, he says this though, that the greatness of a person will be measured by how much they serve. That's greatness in the kingdom. And true greatness is service. That's what the list of Levites mean. And again, we look at these lists and we think, this is just a bunch of names, weird names, names that we don't understand, cannot pronounce, and we don't understand the importance of it, that these were faithful followers of the Lord God, faithful to serve, and faithful to serve the leaders that were serving so that the people of God would grow in their faith in God and be instructed in the word of God. And it takes the people of God to do that. And so that is what we see with this long list. By the way, I have a feeling there is a list that you're concerned about. When you read these, just keep this in mind when you're tempted not to read them. And that is, there's this list of people who are, are in the book of life. I'm supposing you want to be in that book. I'm supposing you want to be in that list. Let me tell you, the list means something. And don't miss the meaning of the list in the scripture. That's an Old Testament person telling you that, okay? Whenever you read genealogies, it's not because they're just hung up on genealogies. You know what they're doing? They're showing the faithfulness of God to his promises from generation to generation. Aren't you glad that God is faithful from generation to generation? Amen. That's what we're reading as we read these names. Real people with a real God who is faithful. Let me move on. You've never heard someone get excited about genealogy before in your life, I'm sure. So I better move on. I'm just getting outside of myself here. The next one here is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And we see this in verses 27 through 47. And let's read verse 27 uh, and following. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, from Beth Gilgal, from their fields in Geba and Asmavath, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. Look at verse 31. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. And go to verse 43. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. 
What was the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem? It was a time of rejoicing and singing. A time of rejoicing and singing. And it's interesting, the, the Hebrew word that's used here in verses 43 and 44, five times in these two verses, the word for joy and rejoicing, which is the same Hebrew word, is used. Why? To emphasize how joyful the people were and how much they rejoiced and how loudly they rejoiced because of the Lord and what he had done for them and keeping them safe, giving them everything they need, needed so that they could build the wall and no longer be a reproach to the nations. A time of rejoicing. And this was important for them to, to recognize. It is interesting that God was the source of their great joy. And it says the women and children rejoiced along with the men, and it was heard from afar. Here's the thing that these people expressed their worship and gladness and joy in what God had done for them. People who are a people who really appreciate God and what he has done are a people who are a singing people and a rejoicing people. It is a part of being who we are. It is a part of our DNA. And there's nothing cool by standing and acting like we're just statues and acting like there's something wrong with us, like we can't read or something as the words are given, as opposed to rejoicing in the Lord for what he's done. And it is something... My dad a couple times had to have talks with me when I was an, an adult. I remember them. I'm not talking about when I was married. I was I, in college. But I know this because I, would, I came home, both these instances, and um, I was working a lot. Basically, home for me at that point was a bed and a place. My mom still did the laundry, and so I had clean clothes, a bed, and food. But that was it. I was, I was working a lot of hours. I was going to school full time. And so um, I was um, just, uh, we were um, engaged at that time. So I was about a year out from, from just leaving home completely, which my parents were very happy with because I came home one day and my, all the furniture in my bedroom had been moved out. My dad uh, put an office in my bedroom. I guess, well, I guess I am leaving after all. Um, so there you go. So they were really upset about my leaving. You could tell. Um, but anyhow, I remember walking in, he said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. I came in, I knew this is not going to be good. And he said this to me, he said, you know what, I, uh, I didn't appreciate that you're, you're a, a Browns fan. We, I grew up in Cleveland. He's the one that took me there, by the way. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. And that's saying something even today, believe me. Um, but anyhow, um, he said, you know, and, and it's an okay to enjoy sports and all that. My family enjoyed sports a lot. And it was really, my, my mom was a great athlete and, 
and uh, my brother and I uh, were somewhat athletic, I guess. And, and so, but he said, you got, your, you got your emotions too wrapped up in this thing. He said, back when we lived in Cleveland, he said, if the Browns lost that afternoon, we might as well have called off church Sunday night because they would come in and just act, they were just moping. This is back when the Browns were good. We're used to losing now, so it's not as big a, big a thing. But he, he, he said, it was just like the, the Browns dictated their outlook on life and their whole, their whole persona. And he said, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. But he says, when it, you get so wrapped up in it that it, it and it's true. Um, my pups, you know, I have pups. Ann will talk to them when I'm watching a ball game. I start talking to the, to, to the TV, and I said something to Ann, and she didn't respond. I said, I said, you're not even talking to me either. She said, I thought you were talking to them again. And I said, well, I'm talking to you too. She said, well, who knows who you're talking to when you're watching the ball game? And it's really true. I'm just going on about it, and I'm saying, did you see that? That's awful. What are you doing there? And all that sort of thing. Um, and she has to pacify the dog. She'll say, he's okay. He's okay. And the older dogs, they know this, but we've got the pup. She's still learning. So she's like, what's going on? So that's okay. It's just him. Okay, I'll lay back down then. So that's what they do. You can enjoy your sports. I enjoy mine. But when I get more hyped up about the Browns scoring a touchdown than what I do about the life that I have in Christ, there's something wrong with me. It's okay to, to enjoy things in this world, but there's no comparison to the joy that we have in Christ and the, the rejoicing that we have in him. And it is keeping things in order. And so I wonder about some of us. We think it's perfectly okay for someone to put on a dog mask and have carry around a bone and go into the dog pound and start going burp, 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 like that in front of you know 100,000 people. But when we get into a group of people like this, we can't stand up and sing and rejoice in the Lord and pour out our rejoicing to him because he is our God and he is our eternal God. And that game will be forgotten like the next day. And so they rejoiced and people heard it from afar. They sing and they sing loudly because of the rejoicing in the Lord. Do I get hyped up? That's why I'm a, a ben, uh, I'm sorry, I almost said Bengals fan. That, I'm going to have to wash out my mouth. I, I can't believe I even said that. That's just, you have no idea living in Ohio how, how I'm going to be banned. That's what's going to happen. Or in our culture, canceled. There you go, okay? Um, but no, no, that's why I'm an Ohio State fan as well. I can at least have one team that wins a game once in a while. But the point is, no comparison. No comparison. And I want to ask you, do you rejoice in the Lord? Do you truly rejoice? They did. And that is a mark of the people of God. And you can go through the law. You can go through the history books. You can go through the, the, the wisdom literature, the prophets. All teaching in the Old Testament and, of course, in the New Testament as well. That people of God sing 
and rejoice in him. And we see that through all, all of Scripture. It was also a time of cleansing and purifying. Look at verse 30. And the priests and Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people and the gates and the wall. It was a time of purity, demonstrating that they wanted to be right and do what was right before God. People who love the Lord and are dedicated to him. You see, you may think that this was a dedication of the wall. Understand, this was a dedication of the people of God. Really. It's just like a baby dedication. Not really the baby. It's the parents that are making the dedication to raise this child in the way that they should be raised and to be the parents that God has called them to be. And so... As they dedicated this wall, it's really a dedication of themselves saying that we're going to be the people of God that you called us to be, and we are committed to that. And it's interesting that as they worshiped the Lord, they saw the need also to be pure, to be clean, to be right before God. That was their desire. It was also a time of organizing and giving. Look at verse 44. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served, for they performed the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each they required and set apart consecration, or consecrated portion for the Levites and the Levites set apart consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron, that is the priests. What we see here, Nehemiah organized the dedication service and he gathered the people together. Then he appointed people and organized it and supervised the contributions made to the temple. Who, and it was made for those who served in the house of God so that they would be provided for. Notice again, it says here, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites. We see that in verse 44. The people of God rejoiced over their spiritual leadership. And they wanted to provide for them. This is what they understood God would have them to do. And to be generous in that. I told you that my wife and I are committed to giving. I'll tell you why. Well, the Bible commands it, but there's much more to that than in my thinking. I want to give because I want to give to the things that matter most to me. And what matters to me is the work of God, and I am so grateful for Men and women my entire life who love me enough to teach me the word of God. I remember Miss George. Miss George was in my, she was my Sunday school teacher. I was five or six years old. And I have a little New Testament 
that I have kept ever since I was that age from memorizing Psalm 100. I also remember this about Miss George. She's an elderly lady, had never been married, humped back. She kind of just went like this. She's almost just barely taller than the children that were in the class. But each Sunday she'd say, I'm going to let everyone, we're going to sing their favorite song today. What's your favorite song? Some of you, you've never heard this song. Some of you have, and that tells just how old you are. But the title to the song was Surely Goodness and Mercy. And we'd sing that song, Surely Goodness and Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. And you say, well, you're just quoting the scripture, uh, Psalm 23. It's a wonderful song, and I remember that as my favorite song as a kid. And it's kind of funny to me because the, the verse starts with like a poor and wayward um, man I've been, and I'm like five years old, and that's how it started out. And, um, but I will tell you, Miss George had let me sing, let us sing that song, and I would lead it. And now I'm 58 years old. And 53 years later, I still remember Miss George letting us sing that song every Sunday. And I say, yes, he has been good to me all the days of my life. And she taught me God's word and loved me. And I could go through others, and we don't have 58 years for me to talk about all the people who have loved me enough to teach me God's word. And they are precious to me. You have no idea how precious they are to me. You hear me talk about my father. Every, if you're around me very much, you'll hear me talk about my father. He was my pastor. And I loved him because he was my father. But he, I loved him because he taught me God's word. And he taught me to love God. And he showed me what it means to be a man of God. These people are precious and so I want to give to the church, to people who are precious to me, who love me enough to teach me the word of God, because there's nothing more precious in my life than that. And I understand what they go through. I understand what they go through to be trained in seminary. I know. I put them through it. I'll hear people come to me and say, oh, yeah, I met a student of yours, had Hebrew with you. They say, you're really, you're really kind of tough. I said, well, that's Hebrew, right? There you go. And uh, I don't care. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, but why do they do these things? It is so that they might know God's word because they love God's word. It's so that they might teach God's word to the people of God, which they love as well. And so the people rejoiced over that. And it's well and good that we do. And so they rejoiced over these people. Finally, the disengagement of the people. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1 and 13. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners 
from Israel. Why were they doing this? They were doing this because they realized that it was these foreigners and these foreign entanglements by marrying foreign wives and bringing them in, and it's not just wives, but also giving their daughters to foreigners to marry as well, that when we see this happening, this is what led the people into exile in the first place. All the debris, all the terrible things that happened in their recent history in the last hundred years, all was brought about because they had given themselves to idolatry and many had been, to use a New Testament expression, unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so they said, we're not going to do this again. We're not going to make that same mistake. I'll show you just how deep I am in my culture. Gomer Pyle used to say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is Gomer Pyle theology right here. Because he said, we did this once and we saw what happened. We're not going to do this again. We are going to separate ourselves. And that's what people of God do when they want to be godly. They separate themselves from whatever might entangle them and bring them into sin. Whatever might tempt them into it. It's just wisdom. And so this is what they set out to do. But I I want to close with this one statement in verse 2. God turned the curse into a blessing. And yes, that's what happened. Balaam set out to curse the people of Israel, and every time he set out to curse them, a blessing came out of him, and God caused him to bless, made him bless the people instead of curse them. But I can't help but think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We... Apart from Christ, when I was born in this world and you were born in this world, we were born under a curse. The curse of sin and the penalty of sin that comes with that curse. And you know what God did through his son, Jesus Christ? Jesus came, he was born, he lived, he died, he was raised again and ascended to sit at the right hand of his Father who who mediates for us and advocates for us. He is our advocate. And he has done this also that our curse might be turned into blessing. That by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he took the curse for us He became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God through him. And that is an amazing turn of the curse into blessing. And if that won't make you rejoice, then I don't know what will. I don't know what will. And yet that's what they did. Well, Let me ask you a few questions to think about as as I close. What priority do you give to worshiping the Lord with song? 
I'm not talking about as a church. I'm talking about as you individually. To worship the Lord with song. To make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Do you recognize and support the organizing of the church as a spiritual endeavor? Did you hear that? Do you recognize and support that the organizing work that is done in the church is a spiritual endeavor? Would those who know you well characterize you as one who is full of joy and visibly rejoices in the Lord? What role does purification or sanctification play in your preparation for worship? And finally, what do you recognize and uh, what do you do to recognize and show appreciation for those who have faithfully served the body of Christ as Nehemiah and the people did? Do your spiritual leaders see you more as a blessing or as a curse to them? Be the blessing. Be the blessing. And this is the will of God. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks so, so clearly, and so appropriately, and so, so accurately to our needs today. Father, I pray that we would learn from your word, that we would be submissive to it, knowing that there is joy and blessing in doing so. Thank you for Nehemiah and his leadership. I thank you for spiritual leaders that you've allowed me to know since I was a child who have been faithful for many years that have, as they have served. I thank you for those who lead today, Lord. I thank you for the leadership in this church. I thank you for the elders. I thank you for the, the deacons. I thank you for their pastor, Brother Jeff. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray your blessing upon this church, that it would be this light and that their witness their voice will be heard from afar, just as the people in Jerusalem were as they rejoiced. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and it's for his sake we pray. Amen.